Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And uh, today we've got two guests. Um, one guest is going to come on in the second half. And this is actually somebody that's a returning guest. Uh, he was on the panel that gave an assessment um, about President Biden's first year. Uh, his name is Will Cooper, and uh, he's going to come back. And we're going to talk about a lot of stuff that's happened over the last few weeks, if not months, but at least the last few weeks for sure. Because uh, he wrote an article about one of the things I want to talk about um, dealing with the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago. So he's going to be on the second half, but in the first half, I am honored to have um, a young woman who is uh, in the Atlanta area that is trying to make waves nationally. Uh, she's working local, but she's is trying to develop a national movement politically. And uh, I'm honored that uh, she decided she wanted to talk about her movement on the podcast. And her name is Coach Felicia Killings. Uh, coach Killings is an award-winning coach, best-selling author, and CEO of the Felicia Killings Foundation. She is also the visionary and CEO of the Conscious Conservative Movement, a national outreach work that helps bridge the gap between Black voters and conservative politics. Finally, Coach Felicia is an ordained minister, philanthropist, educator, and motivational speaker. She is the principal coach of my beloved women's virtual ministry, which teaches women how to rebuild their lives after experiencing trauma. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to present to you Coach Felicia Killing. All right, Coach Killings. I'm a I'm an old sports guy, so just being able to call somebody Coach, I, I, I'm kind of natural with that. How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. All right, Coach. Um, what I usually try to do is find like quotes, either from like books or you know public speaking or whatever that the guest has said before. Or something that inspires them and kind of explain why. So I understand there's this Bible verse from the book of Proverbs, the 18th chapter and the 17th verse. And it goes, he that is first in his own cause seemeth just, but his neighbor cometh and searcheth him. What, what does that biblical quote mean to you, scripture mean to you? Hmm. I'm not really sure. Um... It, it's interesting. Proverbs is one of my favorite books. I think it's one of the best books on business and human relationships. Um, do you have another translation that you could read it from? Um, I have to try to pull it up because you paraphrased it in your website. And so that's okay. what um, I have to try to see if I can pull it up real quick. But in the in the uh, in the meantime, kind of explain what the conscious conservative movement is? The Conscious Conservative Movement is this national uh, outreach and organization, which I started in 2019, January 2019, um, really in response to the uh, negative perception that a lot of Black Americans have towards the general conservative movement, as well as white conservatives' attitude towards Black Americans. Um, I've been affiliated with the conservative movement since forever. That's all I know. Um, my father raised me and my sister to be conservative. So as I grew older and started to share more information about my philosophical beliefs, my political beliefs on social media, I noticed that those who are a part of the Republican Party or the conservative base 
had this antagonistic attitude towards Black Americans, whether it was Black history, Black culture, what have you. And then their talking points reflected that hostility. And so during the 2016 election, that's when we started to see um, many more Black Americans considering conservative politics because it was attached to uh, Donald Trump at the time. Um, and so I shared with a lot of folks on Facebook, that's really where my movement, I guess you could say, started to gain traction. I shared with them that if we're trying to reach Black voters, then the idea of using racist talking points or um, these antagonistic messaging, that's going to continue repelling Black voters. So if we want to make a change, then we have to start with our message. So the conscious conservative movement was birthed out of that. I added the adjective conscious to conservative movement because I wanted folks to understand that awareness of being Black, awareness of Black history, awareness of spiritual laws, these things matter to Black voters. And you're never going to get Republicans, white conservatives will never get Black Americans to disassociate from what we love so very much just to be accepted by them. Uh, and so since that time, uh, and let me say it was very hostile <laughs> in the very beginning, I did not get received very well until I hopped on Twitter and there were more voices who um, adhered to the, the philosophy. So that's what it's about. It's about um, bridging the racial gap between white conservatives and black voters. It's about bringing political competition to predominantly black communities. Um, and showing them that they do have a place if they desire, um, instead of just voting 90% of their voting capital towards the Democrat Party. So let me read you another quote uh, that okay. you stated. It says, it's about understanding Black history. It's about understanding that Black history is on the side of conservatism. And if we espouse these messages in a more empowering way, as opposed to degrading and dehumanizing manner, we'll see more Black Americans, Black millennials, especially among Black male voters. We'll, we'll start to see more of them aligning themselves with conservative politics because conservatism has promised to protect our growing Black wealth, which we are eagerly building day in and day out. Now, uh -huh. you kind of addressed that in explaining and based on that quote, how challenging is it to get African-Americans involved in such a movement? Now, you, you've expressed some, some resistance from the GOP itself. What, what's yeah. been your response in the Black community? Oh, they love it. I, I've received so much positive response from Black voters because they've not had or witnessed um, a Black conservative movement make significant strides to appeal to them. Um, especially not in, you know, the last 50, 60 years. So when I go to different areas, for example, like College Park out here in Georgia, and I go to speak to, to residents, I tell them who I am, who I am, what I represent, the movement and whatnot, and then I share with them the values. The reason why it connects with them is because I'm connected to Black history and Black culture. I, I know um, how to speak to folks who look like me and can think like me when it comes to conservatism. Once we have that, that common ground established, then it makes it easier to sell conservative politics, especially when we're talking about economics, which is like the political love language for Black men. When it comes to Black women, some things are slightly different. Many of us are concerned with, you know, the social aspect, uh, education for our children, dot, dot, dot. But it's all about tapping into a Black voter's uh, desire, what is it that they are complaining about, and then showing up with the conservative solution. So it hasn't been difficult for me, for my team, for those who are affiliated with the movement, like in Chicago or New York, it hasn't been difficult for us to make these inroads with Black voters. The challenge comes when we, when we associate ourselves with the Republican Party. That is the biggest challenge that we've had. So, um, as long as more Black voters see more conscious conservatives out here, um, our mindset is not to sell the current GOP, but to do what we can to take over at these local areas so that Black voices are represented here on the right and that Black voters will have a chance, like I said, to have that political competition.
All right, real quick, yes or no question. Is Donald Trump a problem in getting that acceptance? Yes or no? Ah, <laughs> it's, it's not a yes or no question. It's a both. Um, <laughs> okay. I say, I say that because obviously, yes, you know, Donald Trump prior to running as a Republican did not have the kind of hostility that he had the second he decided he was going to run Republican. So there's that hostility. At the same time, when you see the number of more black male voters who voted for him in 2016 and 2020, then you realize, okay, well, there's something there. So it's our job for those of us black Republicans or you know black conservatives on the right, it's our job to tap into what it is um, that attracted black voters to Trump during that slither of history. And from that, it's our job on the right to craft content, to craft policies that can be sold on a mainstream level that will attract more black voters. So um, it, it is a yes or no question, but it's also a yes or no answer. Gotcha. Why should African-Americans be diverse in their political efficacy and thought? Because it is politically profitable for them. So right now, if you're on Twitter, there is this massive war going on between the Democrat Party and Black voters, particularly Black male voters. There is this war between them and the foundational Black Americans, the ADOS group, the Freedman group, dot, dot, dot. And these individuals who are running in the millions are saying, we're not getting any kind of political tangibles from the Democrat Party. So if they don't give us tangibles, they're not going to get our vote. Now, I enjoy these conversations. I'm not active in part, uh, part of them because it's, it's just what they own. That's, that belongs to them. So I'm just an observer. But as an observer, as someone who is trying to sell conservative politics to this voting bloc, what I'm sharing with them is I'm coming from this business aspect. If you give 90% of your voting capital to one party and you refuse to hear uh, an alternative or competing message, then that party has, it's just gonna take you for granted. They're not going to show up, they're not going to deliver because they assume, and then they have history to back it up, that no matter how frustrated black voters are, black men and black women, they're just going to assume, well, you're gonna show up anyways. You're gonna show up to vote for us anyways because those Republicans over there are the real racist ones. Unfortunately, that kind of marketing has worked for decades and so what I'm saying to these individuals is, hey, we have the conscious conservative movement over here. We're willing to sell you conservative politics. We're willing to sell you dual domination. We're willing to sell you this alliance with white conservatives who have gone through years, the last five years of intense teaching and training to help them understand why it's important not to put on these colorblind shades or to say, I don't see color. You obviously see color conservatives, stop lying. So we've gone through all of that teaching and all of that training to get them in the mindset that, yes, we do need to have politics that will um, impact positively certain communities that have had progressivism on their, their neck for the longest. That's what we do on this end. So, you know, those who can sell conservative politics as opposed to the current GOP, we're the ones who are seeing the most impact. And I think that is the main message. I've told folks on Twitter, I said, this is not a war between Democrat and Republican. We're talking about political ideologies. This is progressivism versus conservatism. So to your point, and historically, you know this, that originally the Black vote was 90% Republican. And right. then, and, it, and the few Democrats were in the North. Um, and then as economic policies like from Roosevelt and others came in and then we literally started taking over the Democratic Party in the South, then that's when that shift happened. So we've always historically been one or the other. We've never been like the Latino community or the Asian community where it's always been an open debate um, and it all depends on what part of the Latino or Asian community you're trying to reach who gets that political support. We've never been balanced like that. So you have a daunting challenge. Um, uh -huh. 
let me let me go back to that first biblical. I found a another translation, and maybe that'll kick it in because I couldn't find. I couldn't. You got so much content on your website, I couldn't find it real quick to where you had highlighted. But it says the first speech in a court case is always convincing until the cross examination starts. Yes, I love that passage. Okay. Everyone, everyone has a, a story. Everyone has something to say about a person until the other story comes to the forefront and all of a sudden things change. I use that passage as a preface to um, the memoir I just wrote called To My Beloved. And um, I talk about the case that I eventually beat um, and I, I prove to folks that you can never just go off and judge people by what media say about a person or this, that, and the other. Because the second another story comes up, the second it gets cross-examined, then everything that that initial person has said, it just kind of falls to the wayside. The thing I love about truth is that it always agrees with final reality. And uh, for folks who follow me on Twitter class, I always tell them, all I need is time. All I need is time for truth to prove what I'm sharing or what I'm doing is validated. So uh, I, I love that passage. Yeah, I, it, it was like, since this is not video, I have to tell the audience, it was like once I gave her that different translation that her face lit up, uh, she yeah. knew exactly what I was talking about at that point. Um, let me ask you this. Do you believe there is institutional racism in America and can a conscious conservative approach help overcome it? Now, before you answer that, I'm going to preface, well, I'm going to explain my question because a lot of people like Larry Elder, who I respect a lot, I disagree with him, but I, I respect him a lot, and Candace Owens, they try to sell conservatism with this to me, this whitewash that denies that institutional racism exists. I don't think that that's your approach, but I wanted to ask you so that you could kind of kind of lean into it and, and talk about it. Certainly. So to answer your question, does uh, systemic racism, racism exist? Yes. I define systemic racism as progressivism. The bigger the government has been in terms of its power, its ability to regulate everything, its power to practice eminent domain. These factors have come against Black Americans from the beginning. We'll just, I'll, I'll just be very simplified with that. When we talk about history, this is the perspective I come from. So I'll never tell a Black person, oh, there's no such thing as systemic racism. I'll say, yeah, there is. This is what it looks like. This is what the form is today. So sometimes when I'm talking about the abortion industry, for example, you, we can all go back to the history of it. We could talk about Margaret Sanger. We could talk about eugenics. We can see all of the de facto, de jour racism present right there. But do we actually look at how this institution is still being used as a racist form against poor Black women? There was this video that went viral between um, I forget this lady's name. Her last name is Yellen, I believe. And she was talking to Senator Tim Scott at this congressional hearing. And in her speech for pro-abortion, she shared why poor Black girls, she didn't even say women, she said poor Black girls need abortion to quote unquote kind of help the economy. And you don't get, you, you won't get as much racism as, I, I mean, that, that was just peak racism for me, because now you're telling black girls that in order for the nation to have a good economy, these black girls have to kill their babies. So this is what I say, this is an example of systemic racism, where you have an institution based on these laws, based on these ideas that poor black women aren't uh, deserving of extending life and this, that, and the other, this is a form of it. And so what I try to do with my teachings is what because I do have to talk to two different audiences. On one hand, I have to talk to white conservatives to teach them why telling black folks that racism doesn't exist and it's not a big deal anymore, that is what gets them slapped in these political streets. <laughs> At the same time, I have to validate black voters and their stories, but I have to tell them that it's not just 
the white man out there in the the backwoods of nothing, you know, talking about inward this and inward that. That is not the problem. Their problem is bigger government. Their problem is progressivism. And so it's just a matter of bringing the message to them that, that both sides can understand so that eventually white conservative black voters are able to sit at this, at this conservative political table and then can come up with policies that are going to be protecting uh, the economics and whatnot. And the, the beauty about what's happening right now is conservatives are experiencing for the first time a taste of progressivism. They're experiencing for the first time uh, you know, having some of their rights being taken away. I mean, they, you should see them on Twitter when it comes to, you know, uh, former President Trump and his house being raided by the FBI. And someone, uh, Mark Rubio, did a tweet talking about this has never happened in American history. And I said, well, Black history would like to have a word with you because <laughs> Black history already knows about the FBI harassing them. So it just proves that there is this disconnect that white conservatives have not even understood black history or read it. Otherwise they would have known that these institutions are doing something against fellow American citizens. So being able to bridge that gap has been most uh, productive, but it has happened through the teaching, through um, explanation, being able to use some of their keywords that trigger them or that grab their attention but just presenting it in a way that they can understand like, okay, I see what you're saying. I see where you're coming from, Coach. So Coach, I I, I get your argument. And um, I've always kind of couched it this way. I think mm-hmm. there's two types of systemic racism in America. I think there's, I think there's a liberal approach where mm-hmm. my, my thinking and the liberal side is the patriarchal. Like okay. these white folks know what we need, so they're going to give it to us, right? Without our input. And then to me, the conservative one is the one that I consider the more traditional because when I listen to the word conservatism, it means keep things as they are, right? Or keep the values as they are. And when I hear you know, the, the dog whistles from back in the 1600s, um, you know, the, the all this language that moves forward even into the 21st century, that's the kind of racism that most of us identify with and try to challenge. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 you know, that, that to me is my, my understanding. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to ask you this question because you're a minister. Mm-hmm. Um, is the fight for equality, equity and justice in America a political, spiritual fight or both? It is. It's all of the above. So when we're talking about justice, when we're talking about um, truth, these are actually pillars of the conscious conservative movement. We have 10 pillars. One of them is like the law of love, the law of grace, the law of mercy. The other one is the law of truth and justice. And you can look throughout the scriptures and you can see firsthand how important truth and justice were and are to God. Um, The scriptures teach us that he will always come to the defense and the rescue of those who are being oppressed. So these things matter on a very spiritual level. This concept, this philosophy has to be injected in our policies. So that's why I argue it's both. There has to be policies that protect and provide justice to those who are being oppressed. So I'll just use this example. Um, the, the policy of stop and frisk, right? That was in New York. Obviously, this was causing a ruckus and it it was unconstitutional. This is an example of what I mean when I say there has to be truth and justice embedded in policies that do not oppress, especially a a group of individuals who cannot change their skin color, who were born um, as is in this country. None of us came out the womb saying, I'm gonna check off and be white today, right? We all have been given this God-given skin tone and birthed into a nation that unfortunately founded itself on racism. 
that's just the history. So with that said, in order to correct the sins of the past, we have to always inject truth and justice into these various policies. I just so happen to believe that the best policies for Black Americans come through conservatism and not just the, the conservatism that we see today. I'm talking about conscious conservatism, this awareness of spiritual laws, this awareness of history, this awareness that the way we think and the way we behave, we are responsible for conserving these truths and then implementing them in the social, political, and economic spheres. This is how we prosper, right? These are the traditions that were used during slavery time when folks were ready to dismantle an entire system meant to destroy a people group. They relied on faith. They relied on these conservative truths. So we are obligated to do the same thing. And I really believe that we should be active in tearing down different policies that are obviously affecting and uh, destroying our Black communities. And of course, the philosophy cannot be applicable to any ethnic group. But I tell beloved conservatives that I'm using Black Americans because this is my history, this is my culture, but this is also a demographic that we need to reach out to because in my, my view, we will not see conservative victories unless we fix what um, the Republican ancestors messed up 100 years ago. So my great aunt was a Republican to the day she died. And uh, I, I've, been a, a leader and elected official in the Democratic Party. So one day I was visiting her before, you know, years before she passed. And, you know, she was telling me how proud she was of me and all that. But she, she said, I got one problem with you, Duckman. That was my nickname. I'll tell you that story later. Um, she said, Duckman, do you believe in God? I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, aren't you a patriot? Don't you believe in America? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, why are you a Democrat? I said, well, Democrats believe in God. I do. And, and Democrats believe in this country. And so part of my concern with a lot of the political discourse that goes on is that it's gotten to the point where it's like we, one party is favored by God and the other one isn't. One party is more patriotic and the other one isn't. And in my experience, neither party has been faithful to us. So I just want you to kind of piggyback on it in a couple minutes. Um, again, why it's important for us to pay attention to what's going on and, 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 and making decisions based on what's in our best interest rather than tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, your, your story is interesting because on the right, that is the idea. The right believes that they have a, a monopoly on God and uh, this idea that the Republican Party is God's party. Um, this goes back to the evangelical movement, um, all kinds of stuff. That's just a whole different, <laughs> a whole different story. Um, but to answer your question, it goes back to what I said earlier. This thing has to be about the ideology that is being pushed out here. It can't be just Republican versus Democrat. It has to be conservatism versus progressivism, especially when we're talking politics. So I know that there are conservative Black Democrats. And to be perfectly honest, I would want them to stay on that side, to keep a check on the loonies over there who are trying to say, take things way too far. In like manner, we have progressive Republicans who somehow think things like banning books and banning knowledge and extending the, the government's power. I have a problem with that. So I'd rather see more conservative black Republicans over here putting a check on the crazies and the loonies. And in doing so, this is what fuels what I call dual domination where black voters are fully represented, which by the way, for your listeners, black voters are uh, the number one conservative voting bloc in this nation. Pew Research did all the work so you guys can go and validate that. So what I'm saying is that representation needs to be on both sides. 
But it, the, the common ground is the idea. It's the philosophy of conservatism and making sure that Democrats have a foot on their neck, making sure Republicans have a foot on their neck, especially as we're trying to build um, in our various communities. If we can get to that place, then I guarantee these, these parties will continue. They will start to compete effectively for um, black voters. And um, in doing so, then that's when you'll start to see more political power uh, manifesting within our community. All right. So coach, do your pitch. Talk about the website. Talk about your Twitter site, the newsletter. You got about two minutes. Awesome. So beloveds can follow me on Twitter at Coach Felicia. You can also go to www.feliciakillings.org. You can find a whole bunch of articles. Um, my books are up there. They're posted. You also can go to consciousconservativemedia.net. You can join our media network where we have a team of um, uh, content creators, podcasters. It's just an awesome time if you really want to learn how to um, implement conservatism in the most empowering way. You'll love it. You'll absolutely love it. Well, I, it, it, in disclosure, I'm a subscriber to the newsletter. Um, and uh, I, I appreciate what you're doing. You've got this 60 day challenge dealing with uh, ending poverty. So you're you're addressing issues more than just political. But since it's a political podcast, I wanted to get you on to to have this conversation. And uh, I appreciate you, coach, taking the time out this this afternoon uh, to make that happen. Thank you so much. And anytime you want to come back, just let me know. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we'll catch y'all on the other side. All right, and so we're back. And um, I hope that you, you, got something from coach killings about options. Um, you know, and, and that was the main reason why I wanted her on is to have a voice that's different than what most of us have been hearing. Uh, as you know, I'm not cool with labeling people names because they don't follow what some people think is the norm. Um, I think the black political diaspora is so divided as it is uh, in a negative way that we need to have a place where people can talk about different ideals and, and how to uh, eventually reach common ground because the goal of anybody black in politics should be uplifting black people. So I'll leave it at that. And hopefully y'all check out her website, which is uh, FeliciaKillings.org and um, uh, Coach Felicia on a Twitter site. Just kind of check it out and, you know, just, you know, listen to the viewpoints and make your own determinations. Um, if you disagree with it, cool. She ain't gonna be mad with you. You know, if you agree with it, cool. I ain't gonna be mad with you. Right. It's because it's, again, the ultimate goal is to lift us up. So just keep that in mind and have an open mind whenever you're dealing with any of these political theories is out there. One of our biggest divisions and I kind of touched on in a previous podcast is how we deal with reparations. Uh, I threw out a couple of ideas on my blog. Um, feel free to check that out. Uh, go to ericrfleming.net and check that out. Um, but, you know, if you're, if you're in, let me just put it this way. If your intent is not to uplift black people, but just kind of prop yourself up, we don't need that. We need people that may not agree to reach common ground and how to get us to move forward. All right. Having said that, um, my next guest 
is again somebody that I mentioned in the in the beginning of the show has been here before. And one of the things I want to encourage uh people who have been on the show is the invitation is open to come back. And uh this this gentleman decided to do that. So his name is William Cooper. Um, he's an attorney and the author of the book Stress Test, How Donald Trump Threatens American Democracy. As a columnist, Will's writings have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Baltimore Sun, New York Daily News, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, US Today, among others. And, and one of the articles we're going to talk about today is something that he had posted in um, the Kansas City Star. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, attorney William Cooper. All righty. And so uh, I have Will Cooper, the, the distinction of being the first guest to return. To a moment with Eric Fleming podcast. Will, how are you doing, man? Doing great, Eric. Thanks for having me again. And it's a, a wonderful distinction. Glad I've earned it. Yes, sir. Well, yeah, you definitely earned it. Um, uh, as far as I know, the show that you and Jamar did has been the second most listened to episode of a moment with Eric Fleming podcast. So another distinction for you. Um, let's see if you can, you can, do that by yourself this time. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I think Jamar, car he carried the show. So I, by myself, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. So look, uh, you've written a book and uh, called Stress Test. Uh, well, it's been released uh, about the same time the podcast came out. So we didn't get a chance to talk about it. Uh, but not to, and I, and I asked people to get the book, but what I'm, Without spoiling the read, uh, it's a hopeful book, right? So in essence, in understanding it's a hopeful book, I'm going to give you these poll numbers that came out from UC Davis. They have a uh, violence research center out there. And so they did this unique poll and it got some news coverage. So I went and pulled it. And their results, and it was a question about political violence in the United States. And their findings were that 67.2% perceive there is a serious threat to our democracy. 50.1% agree that in the next several years, there will be a civil war in the United States. 42.4% agreed that having a strong leader for America is more important than having a democracy. 41.2% agreed that in America, native-born white people are being replaced by immigrants. 18.7% agreed strongly or very strongly that violence or force is needed to protect American democracy when elected leaders will not. And 20.5% think that political violence is at least sometimes justifiable in general. So, and, and it goes further to say that 12.2% were willing to commit political violence to threaten or intimidate a person, 10.4% to injure a person, and 7.1% to kill a person. Um, do you think you might've been premature on that stress test evaluation <laughs> based on those numbers? Well, the la without spoiling the book, the, the very last line is, is the American stress test continues. So I uh, certainly part of my overall thesis is that there's a lot of momentum going in many directions in our country, including some very scary ones. And that UC Davis poll certainly highlights that violence, growing violence and people not just actually acting on it, but holding on to views that condone violence or think it's justifiable under uh, certain circumstances. All of that's a, a big concern for our country. Um, when I see those polls and that data, 
and a lot of other commentary out there that's similar, it, it substantiates to me the idea that in the world of ideas, we're an extremely divided country and that huge percentage of people are in one tribe or another. And there's enormous amount of friction and anger, misunderstanding, irrationality. Um, I don't, however, think right now we're on the precipice of mass violence doesn't seem like there's evidence that that's that incidents are happening with sufficient frequency for that to be a real concern right now. And then civil war, you might have a lot of people that would be willing to enter into one. I'm not saying we're there, but I'm saying you could have that. But the government and the military have such an overwhelming monopolization over the use of force but I can't fathom a scenario where there actually was a real civil war. That would require a splintering of the military into two warring factions. And I don't, I think the military in general is a fairly cohesive unit and I don't see any signs that that would actually happen. So to summarize my fairly long monologue here, <laughs> in the world of ideas, there's an enormous amount of dysfunction how far that actually goes into the physical realm, I think, is a separate question. And I hear you, but you kind of, you wrote an article in the Kansas City Star right after uh, the FBI uh, search at Mar-a-Lago. Some people are calling it a raid. I know Trump's trying to use that term. Having had experience in law enforcement, this was a search, a probable cause search. Um, and as we find yeah. out more, this was something that was months in the making. This wasn't like, boom, we got some information. We need to seize it right now. Um, yes. but you wrote, you wrote, uh, right after the, the raid, an article in Kansas City Star, as I mentioned, and you quoted this, these two guys, Joshua Horowitz and Casey Anderson. And, um, uh, it says a state must be able to enforce this judicial or administrative rulings. If it is outgunned by individuals or factions, it is not functioning as a democratic state. Parenthetically, in fact, it is not functioning as a state at all and is reverting to a pre-governmental society where might makes right and political equality is at best an abstract ideal. You follow up by saying this is exactly what Trump has been threatening to use a violent faction to outgun prosecutors in investigating his behavior and it might just work now you you threw out the scenario about the military but we know in january 6th that you had police defending the capitol and you actually had police officers participating in the riot right so I, i'm not as optimistic that the military is as cohesive. I think we have found that there have been people in law enforcement throughout the country, people that are in the military. I mean, heck, the Secret Service, it appears, is covering up. The detail that was assigned to Trump is covering up for him. Uh, mysteriously, the most one of the most important days in American history, no phone records at all, no text messages, right? So I... I'm not as optimistic about that. Help me, help me feel a little more comfortable. I think those are really good points. And I certainly think everywhere you look in police organization and in the military and in the government, you find growing levels of dysfunction and partisanship and radicalization to ultimately have what would constitute a civil war. So the far end of the most extreme end of the continuum of what we're concerned about would require two forces in battle, so to speak, you know, actually fighting each other physically uh, with some amount of parity so that it wasn't just a very short, quick, you know, setting down of an insurrection or, or something of that nature, but actually something that constituted a war. 
I, my sense, I'm not a military expert, but my sense right now is that the chain of command from the president, the secretary of defense, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, all the way down through the rank and file is still in historically normal shape. So the idea that one part of the military, maybe they're Trump supporters versus another part of the military, maybe they're progressives, that there's some festering division there that could reach the point where it they broke off into two places and you were actually firing, you know, the Air Force planes on one side were, you know, bombing the, the tanks of another, uh, all within the U.S., all within the U.S. military. That I don't see any causal scenario that gets us there right now. I just, that just seems very, very extreme. Now, are there going to be thousands of people within the millions in the military that have extreme ideas? Absolutely. Are there going to be pockets within the country and localities where maybe the police force breaks off and, and starts operating in a way that's independent from the state government? Things of that nature, I think, could happen. And that's we're trending in that direction in some ways. But for me, at least, and I, I welcome your pushback, that it would actually go to the farthest end of that extreme continuum and become a full-fledged civil war, that's not a scenario that I can conceive of. Well, I don't want to push back uh, because I don't want to be right in any kind of scenario that that would happen. Um, but but uh, I, I do have concerns. I, I mean, I, I think it's um, some some comedian let me see if i wrote it down is a quote that he said was was awesome he said that um the gop was immune to irony and allergic to self-awareness and he said that <laughs> he said that in response to people like marjorie taylor green and 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 others like her who are now saying defund the fbi when literally 2 years ago they were basing their political campaigns on any Democrat that said, D even Brian Kemp in, in one of his latest commercials running for re-election said, Stacey Abrams wants to defund the police. I noticed those ads are not running now after the Mar-a-Lago search, but that's been their whole thing, trying to paint the Democrats as anti-police. And now here they are uh, saying de literally defund the FBI and they actually have the those members of Congress actually have the power to do that through the appropriations process. So that's 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 my concern about that. But um I wanted to get into some other things about you know while while I got you talking about well let's jump to this one. Since we're talking about implications, what do you make of a group of historians showing up at the White House. Now, this is not an uncommon practice, um, you know, between historians and and religious leaders coming in to counsel the president. This goes all the way back in biblical traditions with the prophets and the kings. But what do you make of the historians who basically were there to warn the United States about, you know, the president about where we are in history compared to pre-Civil War or pre-World War II with the rise of fascism? I think it's extremely important to get a historical context in your thinking about these issues. And so I'm glad, very glad the president's seeking out advice from historians. And I certainly hope he's seeking out advice from many different people in many walks of life. I think having the historical angle in particular is important because as the saying goes, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. I think that's often true and you can learn a lot from looking, looking back. It's important to recognize, however, there can be very strong analogies in certain respects to historical conditions, yet the sum total of, of the current situation can, can at the same time be very different. So you have to be careful not to get too swept away in the sort of the harmony of a nice historical analogy. 
but I think I think it's great that he got that perspective. I think there's a lot to learn. And I do think my sense is there are some concerning aspects of our democracy right now, particularly the the state of the populace in terms of how they're thinking about issues and the degree of irrationality, the degree of re receptivity to uh, fiction uh, in, in, in their beliefs. I think that is at a historical high, at least in the last 50 years or so. And so understanding that we're in a somewhat precarious place from a historical perspective, I think is very important and it should inform Biden's decision-making. So I was, I was glad to see that. Yeah, I am too. I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of history. I think that in order to know where you're going, you have to know where you came from. And Exactly. That's always been my thing. No matter what city I live in, I try to understand the history of the city because a lot of people don't make the connection that the reason why these political cities are made today is maybe based off something that happened 60, 70 years ago. Right. So. Um, but let's talk about some some current stuff. Let's talk about Joe Biden. Now, you you didn't give him a good grade. <laughs> the. Uh, well, you gave him a decent grade. As a matter of fact, Jerron gave him a more critical grade, but I think you gave him like a B plus or something like that. Um, Sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, the rest of America is giving him an F. I mean, he's he, he yeah. has elevated himself to a 40% approval rating. And that's buoyed kind of like off of the last week or so that he's had uh in getting two pieces major pieces of legislation he wanted passed why do you think there's such a disconnect between what he's actually doing and uh the people that he's trying to help or the country he's trying to help uh in getting these public policy basically getting his agenda through congress i think to go even broader, and then I'll actually answer your question specifically. I think there's a huge disconnect between the American people and what's going on in reality in almost every way when it comes to politics. And Biden just happens to be a prominent example of that. Um, the actual empirical reality of what the government's doing and how well our government officials are actually governing plays little and often no role in what people think and their views are rooted in the hysteria of internet eco chambers and cable news and things of that nature. But and when you're the president, you're going to be the, the shining example of the broader context. And I think that's a lot of what's happening with Biden. More specifically for myself and Biden, I do like Biden. I generally agree with him in an over in an overall way. We, we come from the same school of thought. I like him and tend to agree with him. I do, however, my biggest criticism of Biden is I do think he's well past his prime. And so I think that he, he the criticism that he's too old and that he's not where he was 10, 20 years ago, I think that's true. And I think even supporters of his need to accept that. But in terms of the overarching policy objectives and achievements of his administration, especially in recent weeks with some pretty big legislation, I tend to agree with his objectives. I think he's his administration's filled with smart, talented people. So I don't think he's anywhere near an F, uh, but I think somewhere in the B range is probably more appropriate. And the, the main reason for that is that I do think he's too old and I do hope that he doesn't run again and that somebody with more energy and uh, somebody in the prime of their career steps in. Well, I know you're, you're based out West and, I always make this analogy because it's one of the most frustrating things for me in sports, right? Um, I don't think there's really much of a farm team, right? I, the Anaheim <laughs> Angels, Los Angeles, the Angels of California, whatever they are, right? The team that has two of the the team the team with that has two of the best players in the game can't even make it to the playoffs, and 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 yeah. it bothers me. I'm not turning this to a sports show, but it bothers me because people don't make the connection that they don't have a farm team. They don't, 
you know, the Yankees were kind of a combination of George Steinbrenner spending money, but then raising up people like Derek Jeter and Jose Bazada too, right? It was a balance. It yeah. wasn't like he just grabbed 25 players off the free agent market. And and yeah. I, and and so I think the Democratic Party is kind of in that same situation where uh, Biden's the star because he's the president. But when you look at Biden, when you look at Nancy Pelosi, when you look at uh, Stoney Hoyer, Clyburn, all these guys, I mean, AOC and Cori Bush and all of them tried to highlight that a little bit without being disrespectful. But I mean, you don't really, you don't really have that strong of a farm team. You don't have a group of people that could, if Biden says, well, okay, I'm not going to run, then is it Harris? Is it somebody? I mean, outside of her, because she's a vice president, who else really do the Democrats have? And so that's kind of my take on that, which kind of leads into what I want to talk about with the midterms, right? Um, despite all of this stuff, I think Biden's negative rating uh, is going to have a negative impact on the House. I think for some reason, the Senate is actually going to gain seats. But I think the House is, if they maintain a majority, is literally going to be one or two seats. Uh, and, and, and it's all based on gerrymandering to me and Biden not being as strong as he should be. What's your take on that? What's your read on, on, on the midterm? I, I agree generally with what you said, um, and your point, your first point, I thought was very, very important. Just about the the lack of a farm. I'm a huge baseball fan myself, and the lack of that farm system, and you know, you, so so many people of such advanced age and such important positions, and you got to look at the next generation. I think that's a, a really important point, and. I think one thing that's happening and it's impacting both sides and it's impacting the country generally is politics have become so toxic and the adversaries on both sides of the aisle try so hard to tear down the other side that it really is a deterrent for quality people to enter into that fray. And I think there's still a lot of quality people in government, but there's also a rising number, I think a rising percentage of quality, high caliber, people with the right experience who just don't want anything to do with it. And I think that's part of one aspect of what you're, I think, correctly focused on. As for the midterms, it's been this, the narrative has always been, well, the, the Democrats are going to get crushed. And, and that seems to have been the narrative for over a year now. And part of that is just the historical trend of the first election with the new president. It tends to happen that way. But it does seem like lately there's been some cracks in that narrative. The Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs seems to have energized Democrats in a nice way. There was a the rejection of the constitutional amendment in Kansas that sought to ban abortion, and which showed there was some real energy there. So I'm actually changed my view to being more open-minded and a little bit less confident about what what's going to happen. And I think what you outlined is certainly quite plausible, but it, it could be a lot better for Democrats than the narrative has been. A, I think the Dobbs decision, and then also the string of successes just in the last month that we're seeing help Biden's approval rating. And, and it's showing the American people that Democrats can get things done, right? Some real semiconductors, climate, focusing on corporate taxation, things of that nature, they've actually been getting done and I think the American people are surprised and, and like that. And so they may have more momentum than it seems. Yeah. I, 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 as somebody that is a Democrat, I don't, I don't hide that fact on this show. Um, I, I, uh, I would hope that would be the case. Uh, but I'm also a bears fan. Started optimism, right? Right. I, I'm a bears fan and I'm a root for my team, but I don't think they're going to the Super Bowl this year. So, you know, there's just kind of that. Fields could be good. Oh, Fields is going to be great. <laughs> He's going to be great. Um, but you know, it's just that reality kicks in and that's, that's my concern. I, I'm watching yeah. Liz Cheney basically 
getting ready to give her concession speech tomorrow night um, because she's running in a state, despite her history, uh, you know, her family history, no Cheney has ever lost an election ever until probably tomorrow um, because that state has voted 40% for Donald Trump the last two elections. And, you know, it's... You know, I look at that. I look at, like I said, how some of these districts are gerrymandered. Um, and and I just, I, I want to be optimistic, but I but I just, I really can't because I think that that guy plays such a big factor. When I say that guy, I'm talking about Trump as far as how these, these uh, parts are moving. So, like I said, yeah. I... I um, the, the Jackson appointment, that's come and gone. Whatever bump mm-hmm. he was going to get, he's not going to get any more from that. So, yes. you know, I that's that's just kind of my take on it. I, I um, uh, Is there anything, anything else you think? Oh, the other th- point I want to make about Kansas real quick is that from a historical perspective, Kansas has always been a pro-woman rights state. So mm. I don't take... I don't take that vote as, oh, well, Kansas might have a, you know, a Democrat might steal a seat in Kansas in the, in the House. Now, I don't I don't think that's going to happen. I think that Kansas is Kansas. But when you look at history, Kansas has always yeah. been a progressive state as far as women's rights. So I'm not that's surprised great, that the amendment failed. Uh, I think, a they, great, yeah. A great point. I think Indiana just in the last few days passed extremely restrictive legislation impairing the, the right to an abortion. So you, I think you're, you, you very well may be right there that it's not as representative of a bigger trend as some may want it to be, include, including myself. Uh, it's really hard to read, for me at least, really hard to look at events like you said, the Jackson confirmation or the Dobbs decision and draw a straight line to how that's going to actually play out at the polls, especially when it's months ahead of the uh, the election when a lot of memories fade fairly quickly. Right. Uh, I mean, the, the, the campaigns don't start till after Labor Day. That's always been our yeah. rule when it comes to the general election. Whatever happened prior to Labor Day happened. Uh, at the national level, people try to stoke memories and all that. But what's going to happen between the next uh, couple months after Labor Day is really going to kind of determine what's going to go on all right so our time's about up uh 30 minutes goes quick when i'm talking to you um what where can people get this book and um and is there any other way for people to contact you uh to uh get some more insights absolutely and thanks for that eric uh, the book's titled Stress Test, How Donald Trump Threatens American Democracy. It's available everywhere. So it's on Amazon. But if you go- if you Google it, uh, it'll it'll pop up wherever you like to buy your books, Barnes and Noble, or you can order it through your local bookstore as well. I also have columns that come out um, every week or two, as you noted, the one in Kansas City Star recently. So that's another way. And then People are always welcome if they have questions. You know, I'm I'm easy to find. I'm out out there in the world. Um, my email is wcooper11 at gmail.com, and I enjoy um, enjoy talking about these issues and have a lot of fun coming on your show. Well, I enjoy having you on, and uh, uh, as you you have noted uh, by your actions, that there is a standing invitation always to come. I like talking to you. I wish we could have more time to talk about uh, a lot of the things that go on. Um, but I really, I really appreciate how you uh, try to simplify things in your columns. And I encourage people uh, to look for Will Cooper whenever you know he pops up because he he could pop up in your daily paper. It's not like he's got a set newspaper where he writes a column every week. He'll pop up in Kansas City. He'll be in Columbus, Ohio, <laughs> the Dallas Morning Star, I, you know, Morning News, yeah. whatever. So, um, yeah, I appreciate you bringing that insight and stuff and uh, look forward to having you back on again, man. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I've already come back 
uh, twice. So at this point, I'm a recurring guest. So let's just keep it keep it going as much as you'll have me. I'll I'll be here. So thank you. Yes, sir. All right, guys. We'll catch y'all on the other side. Thanks, Eric. All right, and we're back. So to close out, um, I thank Coach uh, Felicia Killings. Uh, and make sure that you spell Felicia right. I, I, I noticed we both gave out the website, but we didn't make sure that you got the spelling right. She spells Felicia with an E, so it's F-E-L-E-C-I-A killings.org. So I just want to make sure we got that description there. Uh, correct. And then uh, thank Will Cooper for coming back on and um, catching us up on on uh, some recent events that have taken place. I uh, always value uh, Will's opinion. He's very, very balanced uh, uh, in his uh, commentary and his demeanor and uh, explaining things uh to uh, his readers and and listeners. So um, hopefully that you got something out of this show today, uh, give you some things to think about, uh, some things to talk about. And um, until next time.